Uh, we've been talking about getting kids back in the Bible, the storybook of the Bible. I want to read about God's rescue. And you say, well, if you only got limited time, why do you read this? Because it tells the story where we can understand it. Found a little bit of ringing here. Let me back up a little bit. God to the rescue. Joseph and his brothers. I'm still getting a little ringing. I know y'all working on it. Joseph and his brothers grew old and died. But their children stayed on in Egypt where they became a very, very large family. Later on, the new king began to rule. But this Pharaoh didn't remember Joseph and he didn't like God's people. He made them into his slaves and beat them and made them work harder and harder. God's people cried out to God to rescue them, but God, and God heard them. He remembered his promise to Abraham. He would look after his people. He would find a way to set them free. One day Moses was looking after sheep when something caught his eye. A bush was behaving very oddly. It was flickering with flames, but its leaves were, burning, were not burning up. And he took a closer look. Moses boomed, boomed a big voice. Moses kept back. Out of the bush was a big voice. The bush was talking to him. I've heard my people's cries, God said. I've seen their tears. So I have come down to rescue them. Go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go free. Moses was afraid, but God said, I'll be with you. You can see the little fire. The book is pretty good. So Moses went to Pharaoh. Pharaoh, Moses began, God says, uh, God, said Pharaoh, never heard of him, Pharaoh said. Moses kept going. God says, let the people go free. Why should I do that, Pharaoh said. Don't want to. I don't want. So he didn't. So God gave Pharaoh ten warnings called plagues. First, God turned the river of Nile into blood. No one could drink the water, but still Pharaoh would not let them go. So God made frogs come hopping and heaping and jumping. In your bed... There were frogs, in your hair frogs, in your soup frogs, all over everywhere frogs. Make them go away, Pharaoh screamed. Then your people can go. So God took the frogs away. But Pharaoh changed his mind. You can't go, he said. Then God sent zillions of gnats. But still Pharaoh said no. So then God sent swarms of flies, flies buzzing in your eyes, flies. And after that sickness and horrible boils, a huge hailstorm, and a storm of locusts and darkness when it, it should have been a day until it seemed that the whole world, the creation of everything was coming undone, falling back into darkness and emptiness and nothingness. But each time Pharaoh said, make it stop and then I'll let them go. And each time when God made it stop, Pharaoh changed his mind and said, actually, no, you can't go. Finally, Moses warned Pharaoh, obey God or he will have to send the worst thing of all. Pharaoh just laughed. So God said, the oldest boy in each family of Egypt must die, but my people will be safe. God told his people to take their lamb, to kill it, and put some of the blood on the front doors. When God passes over your house, Moses explained, God will see the blood and know that the lamb died instead of you. That night, it was just as God said, Suddenly, piercing the darkness, echoing down the corners of the palace, came a blood-curdling scream. Pharaoh's oldest son had died. And at last, Pharaoh did what God said. Get out, Pharaoh shouted, just go. And so that very night, Moses and God's people fled out of Egypt and out of slavery. They were free at last. God's people would always remember this great rescue call. And they called it the Passover. But an even greater rescue was coming. Many years later, God was going, going to do it again. He's going to come down once more to rescue his people. But this time, God was going to set them free forever and forever. I don't know why any adult wouldn't want to read that to their child. So extremely powerful. It really is. <clears throat> I want to pull out a few verses of Scripture out of chapter 8. I done chapter 7 last week. And my title last week was The One True God. And I told you I wouldn't get through with it last week. And one of the things I want us to learn, even though I read the, the, the Bible there, uh, the 
what we know as the children's Bible. In chapter 7, he sends Moses and Aaron, and Moses is 80 years old, and Aaron is 83 years old. And God goes there and he warns them that you're going to have to let my people go. And we know that Pharaoh, just like in the storybook there, Pharaoh said, I don't know who your God is. Who's your God? And so when he said, who's your God? God says, okay, if you don't know me, I'll introduce myself. And you will know who I am. And so that's what he did. And he sent him. And so he, he would not listen to Moses or Aaron. And so he told him, he said, well, if you don't listen, if you don't let my people go. And he showed him the staff. And Moses took and he threw the staff down, or Aaron did. He threw it down and it turned into a serpent. Well, then there are magicians, sorcerers, who done the same thing. But then... God's staff, or the staff that God had gave Moses and Aaron, it swallowed up their serpents. And so we see that the enemy, you've got to remember that Pharaoh, their, their uh, insignia on their crown was a serpent. Was a serpent. They threw their, it turned into a serpent. We know of a story in the Bible of a serpent. One scholar I've been reading lately, he, he talks about if we had time and we had enough scholars to work on it, he believed that every single word in the Bible has future references to something happened. God is telling us a story within a story. Even that storybook I told you about, the burning bush. In the desert, there was just a burning bush, and, and some scholars believe it's the very same bush of uh, thistles and thorns that you would find. In, and so when God is retelling a story, he tells it and he tells it and he tells it because as we hear something over and over, teachers will tell you that repetition is one of your greatest learning tools. So there's a serpent in the garden, and then there's a serpent later on a pole. There's a serpent on the crown of Pharaoh, and every time this serpent represents the enemy of our souls, the devil. But then we see that God's serpent swallows up their serpents. We see in the Old Testament, there, one of the curses that would be, uh, there'd be hard time in childbirth, that man would work from the sweat of his brow, and he would have to put up the thistles and the thorns and the briars of this world even though that's where he would dig out his food source. And so Moses looks up and he sees this big bush of thistles and thorns. He sees this bush burning, but it's not consumed. And God speaks out of this bush. Some scholars believe that that very bush is representing that Jesus is going to come and he is going to, he's going to consume that curse that was put on this earth. He's going to consume it one day. We see of another place, the fiery furnace, where they threw three men in because they were standing up for God. They looked in. Even the men that threw them in was burnt and destroyed. And the fire is burning. And they look in there, the three Hebrew children, they're just walking around. All the fire did is burn off their chains, their ropes that they had them tied with. There may be a fire coming, but if the fire is coming, it's only going to do something for us. It's going to make us more free. And they said, we looked in there and there was not three men in the fiery furnace. There was four, and the fourth one looked like the Son of God. We could go on and on and on, and we will as we go through the book of Exodus, we go through the book of Leviticus, you're going to see these reoccurring stories. But God... These stories in Exodus, the plagues of Exodus, in the Bible, there's four places that there's extreme amount of miracles, uh, different periods of time where there's these miracles take place. And in these period of times, we'll find that the days of Moses, probably more miracles during the time of Moses than almost anywhere else in the entire Bible. 
You think about all these miracles. He said, I'm going to send you signs and wonders. I told you last week, this, this, this staff can be used to protect sheep, to pull sheep back in, to protect sheep as they're going around. But it can also be used as something to beat off the enemy. So to one people, if you're on one side of the discipline of God or the deliverance of God, if you're opposing God, that could look like plagues to you while at the same time looking like signs and wonders to the people of God. And we see in this passage here through these things, so there's, there's a whole group of miracles during the time of Moses. Then the next time you see a bunch of miracles, there's a time then you don't see a whole lot of miracles. Then you see under Elijah and Elijah, that's also in the past, there's a bunch of miracles. A bunch of miracles again. Well, then the next time in the life of Jesus, while Jesus is on the earth, there's another big grouping of miracles. There's a lot of miracles. But you always see that it's at critical times when these miracles show up. It's at critical times when these miracles show up because God's fixing to show out. And when he does, he's fixing to bring judgment. And when he's fixing to bring judgment, because some even saw the miracles and they did not believe. A lot of times you think, well, if, uh, you know, if I brought somebody in here, they brought somebody in here that died and I laid them down here and I was able to pray for them, they'd come back to life. You say, well, that'd make everybody in Cumberland County believe. No, it wouldn't. Already happened in the Bible several times. Because some people's hearts are hardened and no matter what sign or wonder or miracle you show them, they're not going to believe. They're hardened. And so the days of Moses' miracles, signs and wonders are past. The prophet Elijah and Elijah are past. The life of Jesus' earth, that has already taken place, him here on earth. But there is going to be another time where there's going to be a huge amount of signs and wonders and miracles. That's in the book of Revelation. That's future coming. What we're seeing in Genesis, what we're seeing in Exodus, we're going to re-see again. Matter of fact, four, two of the miracles that Moses did, or the signs and wonders that Moses did, the plagues, are going to re-show up in Revelation, the 16th chapter through there. I'm telling you, the serpent's going to end up becoming like a dragon. This stuff is escalating. They were hell in this biblical time of, as a plague. When you get to Revelation, you know how big the hell's going to be? It's going to be 110 pound hell balls. Read it. The hell was the, was the weight of a talent, 110 pounds. Things are escalating, but guess who's going to win? <laughs> There's bulls, the, 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 the water's going to turn into blood. So two of the, the signs and wonders that Moses did, two of the ones that Elijah and Elijah did, those are going to be. And there's going to be two witnesses in the book of Revelation. It's going to be, I believe, my personal opinion, it's going to be Moses and it's going to be Elijah. And so these, these little books, these books, this whole book written by 40 different authors over, you know, thousands of years, this is telling a flawless story, and even the stories are going to be retold over and over and over again. And it, it's, it's a living book. It's a live book. God is doing amazing things in this book. The Exodus is talking about they're fixing to exit. Uh, and it's kind of like there's birth pains uh, when, you know, we finally, we was told we couldn't have any children, and we went to this Spiritual emphasis week at a youth camp, and Dr. Cantrell, he prayed for me and Sharon, and he told us to take this word of God, and he said, now, now uh, faith is the substance things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, and he explained to us that the word uh, substance there means title deed, and he said, so I want you to pretend you've got a title deed, and you bring it, present it to God, and I want you to say, God, here's my deed to my miracle. And he prayed for us, and, you know, about three or four months later, my wife said, uh, I ain't feeling good. And she went to the doctor, and she called me from the doctor, and I was at school, and she said, we're going to have a baby. And so we named him, son, my son, my first son, uh, Matthew, means gift of God, because we felt like he was a gift of God. We'd already been told that we could never have any children. It's amazing how God in his word is alive. It's alive.
And so whether we're reading about the snakes swallowing their snakes or the plague of the blood, the Nile River we found last week, the Nile River was known as their God. They would go down to the Nile every day and they would, they would go down to the, mountain, the, the Nile and they would uh, get in the Nile and they would, uh, uh, you know, take a bath in the Nile. But one of the things they did religiously every morning is they went down to worship the Nile River. It was one of their biggest gods. Matter of fact, there was a hymn, the Egyptian hymn goes like this. Hail to thee, O Nile, that issues from the earth and comes to keep Egypt alive. That's part of the, the hymn that they would go down and sing. So Pharaoh was probably going down every morning to sing the hymn to the wonderful Nile. The Nile would, at certain times of the year, it would overflow. And the sediments of that Nile was used and it was almost like fertilizer to their plants. And they made it tributaries and it made it a place where they just looked at the Nile is where they get their source of water. They get their source of nutrients. That The Nile was their God. It was one of their gods. So God says, here's the thing. You don't know who I am, but I'm the one true God. There's only one God. You've got down here in Egypt. Egypt is a type of the world. Pharaoh is a type of rulers of darkness, of sin, the serpent on his. And so we're seeing a, a preview of what is going to happen many more times throughout the scripture. We're going to see a defiant world, an earth that hates God, that don't even, maybe they don't even hate God because they don't even believe in God. They don't even know God. They were going, I don't know your God. Well, you're fixing to know him. And so the way that he gets them to notice the true and living God is he begins to attack, come against their false God. So he turns their first big God, the Nile River, and he turns it into blood. And then the next thing was, uh, was this, uh, the frogs. And, you know, but, you know, he, he told them that there's, these frogs are going to come out of that Nile. And uh, he turns it into blood. And we go on then the second plague. Frogs. Heka was the frog god. It had the woman, uh, body of a woman and the head of a frog. And uh, it's the wife of Kunum. According to the script, Egyptian belief, it, he fashioned man from the dust of the earth on the potter's wheel. Doesn't that sound something like what God done? He fashioned us out of the dirt. And you'll find a lot of the things that God said he did, now they're saying they did. Heka breathed life into man. The goddess of fertility and resurrection. They thought it helped the mother during labor. Moses was drawn out of the water. The water of what? The water was their God. Moses was Musha, drawn out. He was drawn out of the water. And it is believed that Pharaoh's daughter praised Heka for this miracle baby that she had. So she probably thought that baby was given to her from their god, the Nile, and the, the goddess of birth, which was the frog god. And so, uh, and they call this frog god happy. <laughs> uh, sometimes people probably call him hoppy or happy. But now that God, the true living God, had come and they would not recognize the true and living God, he turned their Nile into blood and he made their happy, hoppy God to take over the land. You want this God? I'll give you all you want of him. And so the frogs were everywhere, everywhere. So when God, he warned them first and then he, he did it. And then he said, okay, you, you, you know, waited seven days. You're not going to listen to me. Then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to get through to you because I love everybody. I want everybody to be saved. And so the next time he uh, sends this plague of, of frogs. Well, when he done the, the plague of the blood in the river, his magicians, they took, and I don't know if they got a bowl of water somewhere, but they turned it into look like blood. We can do that. Well, then they, uh, they covered the land with frogs so 
Pharaoh's musicians, he come out there. And now they got frogs everywhere in the, where you make the bread, in your hair, in your shoes, in your bed. So the magicians of Moses, what did they do? They made more frogs appear. Why? If you already got too many frogs, why would you want more frogs? But see, it don't make no sense. The enemy really doesn't make any sense. Why would you want more frogs? It's idiotic. Want more frogs. But see, all they can do is copy what God has already done. They can only, they, 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 all they can do is they, they want to try to uh, do the same thing. And uh, so Pharaoh begs for relief. Moses said, accept uh, uh, this honor. And so here's the thing. When you're on the winning side and God is doing great and mighty things, it's not a time to get proudful or prideful. And so Moses, trying to be still very respectful to the losing side, he's trying to be very respectful to Pharaoh, and he said, okay, uh, Mr. Pharaoh, you'll notice there's about uh, 15 or 16 chapters that previous to God coming on the scene, they always called him the king of, of Egypt. And there's a whole group of scriptures all the way through there where they never, not one time, refer to Pharaoh as the king of Egypt until God's people are gone. There's not room in this world for more than one God. One king, and that's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. You'll find that very important in scripture, but this, uh, they asked Pharaoh, say, well, when you just tell me, you give me the word, you tell me when you want to be relieved of these frogs. Now, they're everywhere. I don't know how they slept when they walked. The other thing is that their God, the, the frog, if you killed a frog, you could die. Because that was one of their gods. If you killed one of their gods, you could die. And so uh, they said, well, when, uh, you know, so he says, get rid, of the, get rid of your gods, get rid of the frogs. And he goes, okay, how about in the morning? Tomorrow, let's get rid of the frogs. It doesn't seem to matter to some people, no matter how bad their situation is. And then you give them a choice when you want to get through with this. I've heard of people like you have a, a you know, you, you bring their family around and you, you say, uh, OK, you, you need to get off drugs. And we're going to as a family, we're not going to support this anymore. And we want you to go and get help. <laughs> OK, when do you want to go tomorrow? <laughs> I've seen these shows where the night before they go into rehab they they try to get as drunk and stoned as much as they can because tomorrow they have to give it up uh for, but for some reason this happens uh there's a lot of other things i could bring out uh teresa's preaching next week she'll bring out some of these i don't want to go too far but then there's the flies the next one uh are the flies and um the we, we find as we get over here to this next plague, the, the plague of the fry, the, these frogs, when he said the word, they died the next day, and they, they stank. I like the King James word, it said, and they stank. One says that they reeked with a smell, an awful odor. But they just piled them up all over the place. Can you imagine your used-to-be God piled up in piles, and they stank? In other words... Your gods of this world stank in God's nostrils. Anything you put before God will one day be challenged. It'll be challenged. And so, you know, the magicians tried to replicate the miracle. When it gets to, uh, there's the lice. Uh, and he, they can't do it. The gnats. Some call it the gnats. And uh, so... The magician says, well, we can't do it. It must be the finger of God. And I told you there's even an escalating, if you can't see God, when he uses his finger. It's amazing that, that the finger of God is very important because the finger of God is used quite a few times in Scripture. Uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, I think it was, he, you know, he was defying God's people. He's the one that you know, through the uh, uh, children of Israel and uh, uh, the thing, but... They was written on the wall with the finger of God and said, you've been, in other words, it was just judgment written out by the finger. 
It said, you have been found, weighed and found wanting. Another place, they were accusing a woman for, that had an act of adultery. I figure maybe she had an act, uh, was in an act of adultery with probably one of the religious leaders of their town. I don't know. But Jesus gets down on the ground, gets in the dust, and he writes. So actually you're having the finger of God writing in the sand and said, ye without sin cast the first stone. You know, I don't know what he wrote, but, but he, then he said, ye without sin cast the first stone and they begin to drop their stones from oldest to youngest. So we're all sinners. He just showed that. But the magician said, we can't, we, can't, we can't reproduce this. You know, we can't do that. We can't make more lice. And why would you want to anyway? <laughs> Why would you want to present more of your fraud problem, you know? Uh, it's like if you called a plumber and you go, I got a leak right over here. He goes, okay, I'll get my tools out. All right, I made a leak right over there. <laughs> it makes so, they just add to the problem. All that Pharaoh's people could do is add to the problem. They didn't have any solutions. When God comes on the scene, there is no other solutions but God. He's the only solution. He's the only way. He's the only way out. The magicians, they said, this is the finger of God. And they used the word Elohim. Actually, it was supernatural being above their gods, and it was actually Yahweh. But the finger of God references God's miraculous power. Belshazzar is the one I was talking about, the handwriting on the wall. Jesus. But Jesus said, here's what Jesus said. But if I, by the finger of God, cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus could just walk around and go, yep, you're out. You're out. I'm not here. <laughs> he, uh, he could just, any place, he could just, if, if some guy was full of devils, he's could come out of the devils, and it went into a bunch of pigs. God is, he's, he's powerful. He's all powerful. Whatever God wants, that's what happens. And Jesus said, but if I, by the finger of God, cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come to you. And sin, the Lord shows up, and he shows up the false gods of Egypt. The, the fourth plague is flies. And this is another interesting one. You know, this fly, uh, there, there's a fly in Florida. If you ever lived in Florida, there's mosquitoes, and then there's love bugs, and there's a, like no see me or something fly and you can be down what are they called no seams you can be on the beach and something just biting you like crazy and you're itching and like where are they at where are they at can't see them but they're biting me some believe that these were no seams <laughs> you can't see them but they're eating you alive and of course they could and you know what they they actually all of these every single one of these were gods to Egyptian people. And this God was called Beelzebub, the Lord of the Flies. Beelzebub, the Lord of the Flies. And uh, so God is bringing judgments against false gods. He loves people, but he will bring down their false gods. And so if your false God is being brought down, it feels like a plague to you. And God loves you so much that he will not leave you the way you are. He's going to bring you up that you can know and love the true and the living God. We find in Scripture, uh, as we go on a little bit further, that, you know, Pharaoh would do this. Here's how the signs went. There was a warning and a warning. God would warn and then there would be a plague. He would warn and there'd be another plague. The third time, there's no warning, just a plague. That was the, with the first grouping of uh, plagues. The second go-round, plagues get a little rougher. There's a warning before the plague. Pharaoh, if you don't do this, this is going to happen. He didn't, then it happened. Then the next time there's a warning, Pharaoh, if you don't let the people go, this is going to happen. We just want to go and worship the Lord. You're not going to stand in the way of us worshiping God. But Pharaoh said No. And so like the third time, there was no warning, and there was a plague. This is a pattern you're going to see. The same pattern is basically in the book of Revelation. Basically the same pattern. 
there's warning and warning. There's signs in the heavens. There's signs. There's going to be all kind of signs going on in the world today. Only the spiritual godly people is going to understand what the signs mean and get ready for it. But God always warns before destruction comes. The difference in the first part of these uh, plagues is they fell on the just and the unjust. You know, I love that song they were singing, but I like the saying, even when it rains, God reigns. And sometimes it rains on the just and the unjust. But here's the difference I learned about that. If a plague is of an earthly nature, if it's come from uh, the gods of this world, it's come from demonic powers, that usually hits everybody. Uh, and, you know, in other words, they're, they're just things that happen because we uh, are underneath the, the sun. You know, all these things happen underneath the sun. As you hear the, about the wisdom of Solomon, things happen underneath the sun. So as people that living in a fallen world, there are certain plagues that come on us because we live in this world. We were born in iniquity. So certain things come about the plague. Get When you're born, you, you're born in iniquity. So the same problem with growing stuff and thistles and thorns and having a hard time in childbirth, it comes on whether you've come to know Jesus Christ or not. These are plagues under the curse. So there's a lot of different sins, uh, things that happen to us because we're under the curse. But when God comes on the scene... And you start reading in the Bible, sometimes you start reading in the book of Revelation, it can seem scary. But one thing we learn from previous stories of where God brings judgment is God makes a difference. You're going to find in this passage that God, but on that day I will deal differently. This is verse 22, verse chapter 8. But on that day I will deal differently with the land of Goshen, where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there, so that you will know that I am the Lord uh, in all the land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. So now there's getting to be, all of the people could have been God's people, but he's, he's, he's come to them. He's, he's tried to woo them. He's tried to warn them. He's tried to, but these people are stubborn and hard of hearing and stiff necked and uh, hard hearted and they're not turning to God. And so what happens, there are people, some of uh, the children of Israel, they weren't saved when Moses came on the scene. We don't know if Moses really was saved in a way when he was called. But, you know, because he'd been on the backside of the desert, he'd done some bad, he'd killed a man. But what we know, he was called of God. And God brings him to the scene and then he, he tells him. So we're seeing God's people get moved by God. And we, we hear this thing that Moses comes on the scene and he says, whatever the Lord God commands us to do, that's what we're going to do. I don't want you to forget that. Whatever God's word says for us to do, that's what we're going to do. And so they start doing what the Lord God says that they are to do. And so we find there's a difference now happening that the plagues are not coming on God's people. They're just coming on the people that are not obeying God's word. They're not obeying God's word. And so a difference begins to happen. Something uh, begins to happen in a very horrible way. And so that's some of the main things I want to bring out about this uh, today. And I want to kind of wrap up and let you know what I believe is happening. This is very pivotal weekend. Uh, yesterday was an amazing, an amazing day. Not because it was Halloween, All House Day. Not because it was the time change, or maybe God's telling us it's time to change. But because yesterday, October 31st, is Refor Refor Reformation Day. Reformation Day. Now, how many knows about Reformation Day? A long time ago in, 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 in Germany, there was a monk who didn't like what the Catholic Church was doing. They were, they were making people pay to get their family members prayed out of hell. They were making them pay, and they had all these little schemes and the little things. And uh, we find that Martin Luther, on October 31st, while other people was out celebrating the devil, he went 
and he nails a thesis of 95 thesis on the door, and he goes, we're not following this no more. I've decided I'm going to follow everything that God says, and it's the, he, he it's began to be known as the, this uh, uh, solo scriptor, meaning the, that it, he means that we're only going to follow the Bible. Now, if you watch some of the videos and study some of the life of uh, Martin Luther, he wasn't, a, he wasn't the greatest man in the world. He was kind of a rough, tough guy. He had rough speech, uh, really tough speech. And uh, he was known to hit the beer quite a bit. I mean, quite a bit. I mean, a lot. But he did have access to a printing press. And so he printed out these 95 theses and he put it up on there and he was the beginning, has been known as the beginning of the Reformation. And it's the, kind of the birthing of the Protestant movement. But it happened on October 31st. It's kind of like God wants to show up when the world seems to be the darkest, when it seems to be the hopeless, when it seems like the devil's in control, when it seems like everything's going to go bad. God shows up and goes, hey, you, you don't count me out. Don't count me out. I'm God Almighty. And everything that I've commanded you is going to come to pass. Every single jot and tittle of this word is going to come to pass. And, and so, he, I believe that what I want to talk about, other than him being the triune God, this morning I told people I got here this morning, God changed my whole message. And if I did it, it's going to be really bad. If God did it, it may end up really good. But I believe that what we're seeing here in Exodus, Genesis and Exodus here, is a formula for revival. A formula for restoration. See, if a monk, a, a German monk, if he could say, well, I'm going to write the Bible. We're going to print the Bible. Right after that, he printed, began to print the Bible, and he printed it in German. Because the Catholic Church, you know, of course, it was... Uh, in Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic, but then they printed it in Latin, and then only the priests could come up and read it, and the people didn't understand it, and so the priests, just whatever they told you, you kind of went along with it. And, 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 and you know, Martin Luther said, that's not going to work. We've got to get the Bible down to where people can understand it. We've got to get it in their own language. And so he, he writes the Bible. He puts it in print. And he had to run for his life. He had to hide out. People wanted to kill him for what he had done. And I, I see this, that here Moses is showing up at a very dark period of time. They've been in bondage 430 years. Moses shows up and he said, I just want you to know, y'all may not know him, but there is a God. He's the one true God. And whatever he says, we're going to do it. And we're going to make a stand. And God's going to deliver our people out of bondage. And we don't care how big you are. We don't care how big your army is. God is almighty. Well, they had a deliverance. They had uh, uh, an exodus. They had some birth pains to start with. It, it was rough in the beginning stages. But God, did God not deliver the children of Israel? He did. What did the little storybook tell you? There's another exodus coming. It's bigger. It's better. It's more powerful. God's going to, he's going to, he's going to restore. He's going to reform. He's going to cause another great exodus. But this time it's going to be forever and forever. We find this. So there's another period of time in Scripture. Turn over to Nehemiah's writing. Nehemiah, they're looking back at another great story. They're looking back to the Exodus. Well, in, their, uh, in, in Nehemiah's writing, the 8th chapter, Nehemiah feels sorry. He feels burdened for the people of God. They're, they're in bondage. They're, they don't have no walls around them. They're being pillaged. People are stealing from them everywhere they turn. And so they started trying to build the wall around the city again. And that's what he was sent there to do. They got in uh, chapter 4, the 6th verse, so we rebuilt the wall till it all was about reached half its height. You ever get halfway there and it gets real hard? We get halfway through life, it gets hard. Midlife crisis. And, and the people work with all their heart. But I tell you what, when the people give all, then God gives all. The people, they built as much as they could build. They built in their backyards. They started building. They done all they could do, and that's all they could do. 
And, 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 and the enemy kept coming after them. They literally had to have somebody standing with the sword as they were building the wall. If you come try to tear down this wall, we're taking you out. God said, build the wall, we're going to build the wall. You're not going to stop us from building the wall. So by God's help and God's grace and Nehemiah's leadership, they built the wall back around the city. They put the gates back on the city. So now they had the wall. They felt a little bit more secure. They were getting their city back. And then the people goes, okay. And then the next thing the people did, they began to give. You can read this in chapter 7. They gave, about 50,000 of them, they gave mules and donkeys and camels. And they gave treasures. Uh, they gave gold. They gave bowls of garments for the priests. Heads for the family. Derricks of gold. You can read of all the stuff that the people began to give. I believe in every reformation, in every revival, in every period of restoration, people begin to give up their goods. And they go, all that matters is the, is the, 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 the will of God. If whatever it takes, we're going to build up the walls against the enemy. We're going to stand up. We're going to invest whatever we need to invest. We're going to see God do something in our generation. So they gave and they built the walls and they begin to give. And then in chapter 8... In chapter 8, when the seventh month came, the Israelites had settled in their town. What was the seventh month to the Jewish people? It was the new year. So this is New Year's. Rosh Hashanah. All the people came together in one of the squares before the water gate. And they told Ezra, the teacher of the law, bring out the book. Bring out the book. They only had one. Bring out the book. Bring out the book. Bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. Bring out the book. Bring out the book. I want everybody to say that together. Bring out the book. Bring out the book. Bring out the book before there's ever a reformation, before there's ever a restoration, before there's ever a revival. People get back to the book. And they start saying, whatever God says to do, that's what we're going to do. Get back to the book. I'm telling you, God has turned my heart way back to the book. I've told people if I'd have knew what I knew about going through the book of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus, go as we're going to go through. It's bringing a new life to my studies of the Bible. I find myself waking up in the middle of the night. I've got the Bible on tape. I've got uh, lectures on tape. I'm waking up and listening for an hour, two hours at a time, listening in the car. You know, we have these clubs where we, we keep track of how many miles we've, we've, we've hiked and all that. I wish this year we would start a club and reading how, you know, getting groups, how much of the Bible we read, how many chapters we read, how much we've done. We could read through this whole Bible. I heard about one lady, she decided, well, I've read other books bigger than this. I've read school books. She made up her mind she was going to read if she had to do day or night. She read the whole Bible in about two weeks. But this is what was happening you know, if you go to Garth Brooks concert, they go, Garth, 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 Garth. They're wanting him to come out. You know, he's behind the stage and they're waiting. And the people are getting anxious and the lights are starting to come down. And you know something's fixing to happen. And everybody goes, Garth, Garth, Garth. But here, God's people had got excited. What were they excited about? The word of the living God. And so they said, bring out the word. Bring out the book. Bring out the book. Bring out the book. I think that me and Teresa and Jeff and, and Sam, we deserve to hear y'all yelling that out when, we're, when the worship is over. We want you to bring out the book! Bring out the book! we got to hear the book! <laughs> and so the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it out loud, daybreak till noon. Wasn't no preaching, he just read the book. He just read the book. The foolishness of preaching. We can add all our little stories, but the power is in the Word. The power is in what thus saith God said in His Word. They read the book. I don't know, it had been rough, they were like reading Leviticus. They're going to read it from daylight to noon, the book of Leviticus. And they faced the square before the water gate in the presence of men and women and others understood it. And all the people listened intently. Oh, for the day that people come hungry for the word of God. They're yelling, 
Get to the Word. Get to the Word. Let's worship God more. Let's give more. Let's get in the Word more. They even built a platform. They had this reading. I want you to know, it was the first day of the seventh month. And they chanted, bring out the Word. Bring out the Word. We, we look at that and there's some exciting things happen as they relive the story of old. They, they, would, uh, they would, at these times, they would relive the atonement. Putting on the blood. Jewish families, when they do the cedar mill and all, cedar melt, they take and they dip their finger in the wine and they drip it across the plate and they'll go, God turned the Nile River into blood. Then they dip their finger in the wine, they drip it across there, and each one they do that through all the ten plagues as they tell the story to their family across the dinner plate. Why they don't ever want their kids to forget about God is their redeemer. He's their rescuer. He's their almighty God. So what happened to this, this people, uh, Nehemiah's people? The, it was on the holy day. The holy day of the Lord. Your God, do not mourn or weep. For all the people have been weeping as they listen to the words of the law. I'm telling you, it, it's during the bondage time. You hear the word and you're like, man... Can you imagine what it would be like to be in bondage 430 years and God just comes and says, let my people go and we go. And they must have been thinking back, man, that was something. Wish God could do it again. Wish he could do it again. I love in the last part of this book, many years later, God said he's going to do it again. Heard a story this week about a professor in a college, Professor Orr. He took some of his theological people on a trip to England and he took them around and showed them where some of the great beginning revivals took place. One of the places that they went is the rector of John Wesley. I don't know if you know this or not, but John Wesley, his mama had like 15, 16, 17 kids, I think. He was number 15, I know that. Their house caught on fire, and all the kids got out but little John. The structure was literally about to fall down, and somebody had found, put together a ladder or something, and got up, and they got him out of the room. They said it was like miraculous. His mama, from that point on, said he was plucked from the fire which was a passage from Zechariah. Well, the theological students were excited about going to see this place, and they took him in. They said, here's where John Wesley used to eat breakfast. Get up, everyone, eat breakfast right there in this little kitchen. They took him around and said, here's the living room. Sit by the fire there and read the Bible. Then they took him up, took him upstairs to the bedroom. All those students... They all crowded around. You know, bedrooms back then were small. They all crowded around the bedroom. And they said, this is uh, where John Wesley, you know, he's a great Methodist minister. This is where John Wesley, this is where he slept. And as they were walking around the bed, they saw a place on the side of the bed. And there were two worn out places next to the bed, about that big, two almost side by side. And the, the floor was just like wore out. And they, one of the students asked, uh, Professor Orr said, what is that? He said, well, that's where John Wesley used to get up in the morning. He would kneel down beside the bed. He didn't pray for a minute or two. He'd pray for hours and hours. And he prayed for revival. He prayed for revival. He prayed that there'd be a mighty move of God, a restoration, a reformation, that God would do something great. There's where he knelt every day and prayed. Kind of had an effect on those students. Well, they all went down to get back on the bus. 
professors down there, and like they do, you know, people get sidetracked, and he counted them all. Not everybody was on the bus. So went back up to John Wesley's home, and he looked in and didn't see him in the kitchen, the living room. He finally thought he heard something upstairs, and he walked upstairs, and he could hear somebody up there. As he looked on the other side of the bed, he could see someone, the ministers, kneeling down and had his knee in the same knee spots where John Wesley had bowed down to pray. And he sat there and listened for a few moments. This young man was saying, God, you brought revival through John Wesley. Do it again. Do it again through me. Do it again, Lord. Do it again. Well, the professor went over, tapped him on the shoulder. They walked out to the bus. Professor stopped and he let Billy Graham get on the bus. Billy Graham was the one that knelt down where John Wesley had knelt for many times. And Billy Graham cried out, do it again. And guess what? How many knows God did it again through John Wesley, through Billy Graham. He did it again through Billy Graham. He did it again. I don't know what's going to happen Tuesday. I don't really care as long as God's will is done. Been a lot of exciting, enthusiastic people lately. Some have chance. Make America great again. Make America great again. Some people chant four more years. Four more years. You know what I'd love to hear? What I'd love to hear would be enchanted. Bring back the book. Bring out the book. Bring out the book. And whatever that book says, that's what we'll do. People, I don't know who to vote for. If you read this book, you'll know exactly who to vote for. Bring out the book. Bring out the book. Churches across America. We can't compromise. You know one thing they said to Pharaoh? They said, Pharaoh. They said, uh, hey, Pharaoh. Let the people go. And he said, I'll let them go a little ways, but not too far. They can go. Then he finally said, you can go three days, but you've got to come back. You read all that story. Compromise is a horrible thing. Heard about a guy one day who sold a house. The story goes that the guy said, I'll sell you a house with one condition. There's one thing in that house I want to keep. Kind of tricked him. He said, behind the door, there's a nail there. My dad used to hang his coat on it. You can have everything in the house, but that nail behind the door there is mine. It'll always be mine. I can always hang whatever I want to on that nail because that nail's not going in the deal. So the guy moved in the house, he fixed it up, made it look fabulous. One day a guy come back, he said, I want to hang something on my door, on the nail. He hung a dead animal. It stunk so bad, the guy had to move out of the house. Compromise is a terrible thing. Heard a story about a hunter, he went out in the woods, he wasn't very good at hunting, but he's out in the woods and all at once he was on a, upon a bear. He was shaking, he had his gun up, and there's the bear was. Bear goes, talking bear, by the way. Bear goes, what are you going to do? He said, I'm going to shoot you. Why are you going to shoot me? Well, I've seen some people who got a big bear coat, and it looks pretty good on them. I'd kind of like to have a bear coat. Bear goes, Hunter said, what are you doing in the wood? He said, well, I'm looking for something to eat. 
The bear goes, you know, we can compromise on this thing. But let's just walk out here in the woods and talk about it for a few minutes. The bear and the hunter, they walk back in the woods together to talk about their compromise. Wasn't long, the bear comes back out of the woods. They both got what they wanted. The bear was full, and the man had a fur coat around him. Folks, I love people. I love our country. There's no minister that's all the way right. There's no leader that's all the way right. There's no party that's all the way right. But we're being brought to a crossroads and where compromise is not going to work. They go, well, just, you can go a little ways. That's the way Satan wants you to do. You can do a little bit. I think people compromised on abortion and now it's not, uh, not 30 days, 60 days, 90 days. Now it's like post-birth. But yeah, we're getting rid of you. There's certain things that just as time grows, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. A minister told me back in the 60s, what is done in moderation in the 60s will be done in excess in the years to come. It never goes... God is calling us back to this word. I'll be the first to say as a minister, the, minute, the pulpits across America has got a long ways away from God's word, to be honest. If the teaching of preaching of this word does not change the world, it can't be changed. Moses and Aaron was very careful to say, and do everything that God has commanded you. When he, he's fixing to give us the Ten Commandments. Do everything that God commanded you. There's some stuff in this word. It may sound like you could be a little bit off, but you can't compromise God's holy word. It's, it's scripture only. And so I don't know about you. Instead of hearing people yell, four more years, or make America great, or any of the other things that people could do, I would love to hear people go, do it again! Do it again. I'd like for us to go back to the word of the almighty God and read it and scream out, bring us the book, teach us the book, teach us the book. We want the book. We want to worship God. We're going to give up our resources to God. We're all out. We're all in. Do it again, God. Do it again. Do it again. That was the simple prayer that Billy Graham prayed and God did it again. I see the excitement. There have been 96-mile-long Trump trains. You know what I believe is fixing to sweep this world? There's going to be millions of miles of people out there with flags and banners, and they're going to say, Jesus Christ is Lord. He's King of kings and Lord of lords. It's going to be a Jesus train. There's going to be convulsions of, of the power and the anointing of God, signs and wonders. God will get this world's attention. It's coming, folks. You can tell what God is doing clear as day. God, it's going to be great and wonderful if you're on the right side of God. It's going to be horrible if you're not obeying His commandments. Just the way it is. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, it's my deep desire, Lord, to get back in your word. I repent for not being in your word as much as I needed to be. We should all read your entire Bible every year, maybe a couple times a year. It's more important than anything we could watch on TV. God, we need to have reading clubs and Bible clubs. And we should be yelling, bring out the book, bring out the book, bring out the book. We should be praying and praying and praying. Paul was called camel knees, or James was called camel knees because he prayed so much. His knees were, uh, had scars on it and, and calluses on it like camels. What a great leader he was. God, bring us back to prayer. Bring us back to your word. God, bring us back with a reverent fear of you that we're 
Lord, we, we, we would fear not to follow everything that your word says. God, bring revival. God, let our children and our children's children see that the most important thing in our life truly is God. I don't know that they know that right now. God, it's got to start with somebody. Had to start like Martin Luther and John Wesley and Billy Graham. Lord, why not me? Why not me, Lord? Why not this congregation today? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.